Hello, Mark. Joe, what terrifies you? Actually, no, I've got a more specific question. What terrified you, like, between the ages of, I don't know, let's say 9 and 13? 9 and 13. Okay, I got to think back a couple of years. I'm trying to think. I mean, there's, like, the obvious, you know, things that people are afraid of, like, you know, silly things like death and and public speaking and that sort of thing. But back then, you know, one of the things that terrified me the most back then was the thought of having to sing in public. (laughs) Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that didn't go away until just a few weeks ago. Now I'm like, okay, with singing in public. So, Well, you're much more grounded than me because I was terrified of vampires. I actually slept Vampires. Yeah, I I saw Salem's Lot about that time. I can't remember what year, how old I was, but I saw Salem's Lot and I was like, well, shit, that's a problem. Oh, sorry, I don't normally swear, but <laughs> that's actually how I felt. As a There's so much for the clean. Yeah, so much. Oh well, oh, well. Well done. And I was like, you know what? I think I'll just, I'll, I'll hedge my bets here. I'll have a little garlic next to me when I sleep because I didn't have a cross available. Huh. And do, are you still afraid of vampires to the same? Not to the same degree. The concept still bothers me quite a bit, especially emotional vampires or you know, mm. the kind that we actually can meet in life. Uh, yes. Do yeah. freak me out. Yeah. One of which is not joining us today. No. Uh, our guest is not one of those emotional vampires. We've only just met, but I can tell that already. <laughs> so. Yeah. Not at all. Not an emotional vampire. But my question would be not what terrifies you from the age of nine to 13, but what still terrifies you to this day. And it would be the the film that we're going to talk about today. The thing. John oh Carter's yeah. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we will get to that. But first of all, just to identify you, Timothy S. Uh, Johnston, what does the S stand for? My middle initial and my middle name, Sefton, named after my father. That is a great name. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah. And, and thank you for having me today too. I'm honored. Okay, so before we go any further, what else can you tell us about uh, yourself? And uh, we, um, you're uh, a writer like us, and uh, give us the whole spiel. Well, that's a de- that's a big question. It's a deep question as well. Uh, so, born in 1970, raised here in London, raised on uh, Detroit television, science fiction movies of the 70s, um, Soylent Green, Rollerball, Planet of the Apes. Uh, the Omega Man, oh, wow. all the best uh, yes. science fiction movies growing up in the 70s, uh, Silent Running. Uh, and then during that time, uh, also fell in love with uh, great authors, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Isaac Asimov, uh, Robert Heinlein, and uh, Stephen King a, a little later, uh, and just totally and absolutely fell in love with the genre growing up here in London. A watershed moment for me was, was seeing a movie when I was 10 years old. Uh, and that movie was not the one we're talking about today, but it was uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. Mm. Uh, and believe it or not, I watched that when I was 10 years old, and I watched it in a uh, shopping mall in the audiovisual center. They, were, they had it on a VHS tape, Betamax tape, and it was playing on a constant repeat. And so every day at lunch, I would go across the street and I would watch Alien in this mall hmm. uh, in 10-minute <laughs> segments, and I saw it out of order. <laughs> so I had to piece it together in my mind. Wow. But the, the chestburster sequence, all that, saw that much, much later. I actually saw the film in its entirety in the correct order. But it, it was a watershed film for me. It had a huge impact on me. And uh, later on, uh, when I was about 13, I read Jaws. I read The Exorcist. I read The Amityville Horror. 
and shortly after that i saw the thing hmm. uh, on a hmm. top loading vhs yeah. tape at one of my brother's friends houses because it was a restricted film and of course we couldn't rent i was only 13 14 years old at the time couldn't uh sorry, even younger, 12 or 13 at the time, and could not rent those. So I had to go over to my brother's friend's house to watch this. And uh, it was a pivotal moment for me watching The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. And uh, he was already uh, a name in my household because of um, Kurt Russell in Escape from New York. Uh, yeah. Also the Fog. Snake Plissken. Yeah, Snake Plissken, iconic character that those two created, Carpenter and Russell. Perhaps the, one of the greatest director actor combinations of all time those two and so it just it was a watershed moment for me i actually before watching the thing i had actually read it in 1981 the the novelization came out i can't remember hmm. if i read it in late late sorry 81 i can't remember if i read it in late 81 or early 82 okay i'm gonna, I'm I, gonna stop you there though because uh, before we get more into the thing and we will and because of all the other movies that you mentioned, I this Mark brace yourself. This is going to be a three-hour podcast. Okay. Um, yeah, that's fine. I want to know more about you as as a writer, and like in your career to date. Tell us about that, and then we'll get back to to the thing. You've unlocked a, a can of worms here, and this this podcast <laughs> is just going to be part one of or <laughs> one of many. But the books that I had read, the movies that I had seen, they just kept snowballing from there. Um, the the Terminator after that. Uh, and then when I was about 17 years old, I, I decided, you know what, this is something that I, I would like to do as a career. Mm. I would like to, I would walk into bookstores and I would look at all the books around me. I'd focus on the Asimov section or the Agatha Christie section. And I just uh, I ser- sort of set it as a goal for myself to mm. one day become one of those authors in those bookstores. Uh, and it took 25 years of hard work and hundreds and hundreds of rejections uh, before my first book deal, which was for The Furnace, which coincidentally is an homage to The Thing, and it's inspired by mm. Carpenter's The Thing and um, the imposter theme and Agatha Christie. Uh, and that is a uh, imposter-themed murder mystery set in outer space. And it's the first of three books in the series. Uh, and those came out in 2013, 2014, and 2015. And I'm currently working on another series right now for Fitzhenry and Whiteside in Toronto, Canada, uh, and it is uh, an underwater Cold War espionage climate change thriller. Are you now writing full time, or is this like a, a gig at the side? Or it, it's not a full time gig for me. The um, possibility of earning enough to to make a living while writing is is uh, daunting. It's something that I aspire to to have, but currently also working in education. Right. That's Same. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the number of people who are, yeah. I think there's two, Robert J. Sawyer and, uh, and Margaret Atwood. Terry Fallis. He was. Oh, it, ter- well I now, think, I think, but now he had a whole other career. He did. He finally, yeah. re- he retired actually. That doesn't, does that count if you retire? No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> and I think Robert Charles Wilson, I think he was writing full time. So maybe. I think so. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's probably a few more. I'm pretty sure Emma Donahue, I mentioned her before lives in the neighborhood and I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. she's full time. Yeah. Yeah. Fellow Londoner. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Another Londoner. Yes. There's yeah. There's actually quite a little artistic mm-hmm. community here in London, Ontario. Absolutely. So you've uh so you've got the one trilogy out, you're working on another trilogy. The second series is six books and the sixth book is due in only two weeks. It's called A Blanket of Steel, the sixth and final book in the underwater colonization series. That's not something a lot of writers are writing about is how unexplored so- the oceans yeah. are because they really are 
really unexplored. And there's some interesting possibilities in terms of um, farming on the ocean and mining in the ocean. And we're not really doing that yet. Right. Uh, think um, the abyss meets James Bond. Uh, it's, <laughs> okay. it, it comes wow. from my, my days of, uh, in, uh, being educated at the university of Western Ontario, also here in London at the time, everyone was talking about global warming, the greenhouse effect, rising waters, uh, inundated, uh, coastal cities. And I just got to thinking way back. So this is way back in 89, 90, 91. Uh, I got to thinking, you know, we're going to need more resources. We are going to need, um, something to alleviate the pressures on populations on land, uh, and the oceans are a natural outlet for that. Uh, untold resources, mineral and uh, farming, fishing, aquaculture. And I just uh, got to thinking that that it makes sense that we would start to develop those resources and it would trigger another Cold War uh, when, mm-hmm. when it happens. And so I, I, it just all came together. And in 2008, I wrote um, The War Beneath, uh, later picked up for publication uh, and published in 2018. So the first book was called The War Beneath. And it's, like I said, it's James Bond meets the abyss. It's yeah. it's uh, colonizing the ocean floor and every every city on the ocean floor has a espionage agency and they're all competing for the biggest slice of the pie, so to speak. Hmm. You keep mentioning all these things that I love. Like I, I love James Bond. I love the movie <laughs> The Abyss. I mean, the ending was a little dodgy, but I love the rest of it. Who doesn't love these things? This is the recipe for life. uh, And it's something that uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you about because a a good story has incredible power. The ones that resonate the most and uh, have the most power are the ones that have multiple layers and things that we can keep talking about years and years later, uh, like the thing. Uh, And um, (laughs) I mean, escapism is something that we need uh, today more than ever before. I was bugging you, you know, before we um, got you on the podcast. I'm like, you know, what are we going to talk about? And nudged you towards the thing and everything. And now that we're actually doing it, I find I have all these other things I want to talk to you about. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Part two and part three. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We have to talk about the thing, though, because I just watched it. So I'm still. Oh, yeah. No, we'll. Yeah, we will. I need to decompress, so to speak. Yes. Yes. Well, we will. But okay. But first, I just got to gotta pick a Timothy's brain a little bit. You're obviously interested in all the same stuff that, that I am and, and probably Mark and whatnot. Yeah. And one of those things is, is, is selling books and, and the importance of story and that sort of thing. So I was out selling books today because one of the things that I kind of believe in is um, hustling and, and getting out there and, and, and meeting people and talking to them about books and whatnot. A lot of people came by. The first question that we often ask people is... Um, do you read? Do you like to read? And there's a lot of people that say, well, no, <laughs> I don't read. I want to ask you, in your experience, do you think that people still read to the same extent? Is this something that we need, as writers need to be concerned about? It's a tough question. Do they still read to the same extent? I think there's always a core group that that do. And my family, my daughters definitely do. But audiobooks have, have uh, grabbed hold of a huge portion of the population, especially commuting population. So where we've maybe lost a few readers in one medium, we've gained them in in another. I do know some of the stats. I mean, people are reading more, but fewer people are reading more. So there are there, people are still reading, and I think book sales generally are up, but that's from a smaller population. And I will tell you this, from my experience in the classroom, I'll bring the classroom in here, I don't get the impression that most of my undergrads are reading very much. In fact, I hear from all of my colleagues that it's really hard 
to get their students to read even required materials. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm slightly concerned about that. And I think you're right to be worried about it, Joe, because I, I do think remote moving into that sort of post-literate society that that uh, some media scholars have talked about for some time, I think we're starting to get there. So yeah, I think it's a reasonable question to be worried about. Mm. But maybe as Timothy suggests, okay, so we do the books for the people that are still reading, but then do the audio books for the people that... Yeah. We get, we are creatures of story. Like we are the storytelling animal. So that's in our DNA. So that's never going to go away. We just Listen, find it stories, you know, yeah. reflected in different ways. Yeah. This, storytelling is, is key um, to society, key to escapism. And when I talk to write creative writing groups uh, or creative writing students, uh, I don't talk about writing. I talk about storytelling which is what Mark is mentioning now, and storytelling in all forms. So as a writer, I have to absorb storytelling, not just in books, but in movies and TV, graphic novels, also um, video games, which I find to be the most immersive form of storytelling that exists. And so my genre, because I write in this um, kind of speculative fiction thriller realm, my genre of games would be The Last of Us, one, The Last of Us Two, Alien Isolation, Prey. Those are the types of games that I find immersive. And um, the stories that are told in those games are absolutely incredible. Hmm. And it's not, yeah. it's not one that a lot of people consider when they talk about storytelling, but it's one that is definitely on the rise. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's I couldn't a, agree it's more. It's a bigger industry yeah. than the movie industry now, isn't yeah. it? Am I yeah. I'm wrong on that? Uh, oh, well, absolutely. Yeah. Red Dead Redemption, when it was released, I think the... I think the opening weekend was $800 million uh, for one game in um, one weekend. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's talk the thing guys. I've been, I've been itching for this. I've been itching for this. Yeah. Come on. We're running out of time. Yeah. Good yeah. segue. So story, what is it then about the thing that appeals to you so much? Well, this is, there's, there's another question that we could, I, <laughs> I could spend hours on this. Um, so, I mentioned when I was 12 or 13, I saw the thing, top-loading VHS, had to go to my brother's friend's house, but I'd already read it first. The notions and themes that this that the story has mm-hmm. appeal to me in ways that, that I've thought about ever since. First of all, the isolation, the environment, you know, just as a Canadian and Canadian author, everyone says Canadian authors are obsessed with the wilderness and remote, hostile locations. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it might be true because it's tr- it's true of me. And when I watch that movie, I feel a connection and a kinship with with that. The feeling of isolation and character, the the way the characters are unveiled in this movie, I just absolutely love. And you can't actually watch the movie and hear much of their backstories. There, yeah, are, there yeah. are no backstories really given. However, when you, as a writer, I'm, I'm plagued by this. I, whenever I watch a movie, whenever I read a book, I think about what was the author or the director or the producer or the writer thinking when they did this. Okay, so before we uh, get into that, can you, for those listening who may not have seen the thing, can, uh, oh, and I know, Mark, oh, that you all, have just seen it recently. Huge spoiler alert, because I'm assuming we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Okay, so let's assume from this point forward, they have paused, and Everyone they've gone away, they've seen it, and now yeah. they're back. But there's still some who are who haven't seen it. Brief synopsis of, of the plot. Okay, a, a group of, uh, of characters, remote location in Antarctica, 
nearby um there's a disaster uh, at the norwegian base uh, a dog makes it to their uh, outpost 31 and uh, sets in motion a horrifying ordeal that these 12 characters on the ice have to deal with uh, i mentioned agatha christie earlier it is an agatha christie style murder mystery hmm. it's one of the things that drew and then John there were Car- none <laughs> yes it's one of the things that drew john carpenter to it he didn't want to make a monster movie like Frankenstein. He wanted to do a murder mystery like Agatha Christie's and then there were none. Right. Uh, and uh, at that point, uh, all hell breaks loose in the in the camp as this mysterious creature uh, is unleashed uh, on the 12 people uh, at Outpost 31. The, the thing that I take away most from the thing, and it, the reason why I, I wanted to talk about it with you guys today on your, on your podcast, is what I learned from the thing when I was growing up and what I've learned about um, the production of the movie and what I've taken away from that. And to, to do that, I have to describe the timeline of, of the making of the thing. So John Carpenter said it was, it's the movie that he had the most production time on of any film. So he started in January of 1981 and it was for a, a June or July release in 82. So he had about 18 months on this. Uh, they began uh, second unit filming in 1981 in the summer, in June, on uh, Juneau Icefield, uh, filming the, the scenes of the dog running from the Norwegian base towards Outpost 31. So they so they began filming in, in second unit stuff in June of 81. Right. And they started building the sets in Stewart, British Columbia uh, in the summer. So all the snow will fall. And then they, they're going to film that in the winter. So the snow is on the roofs of the of the set. So they film all the interiors in July, in August of 81. And then John Carpenter gets something that few directors have the privilege of ever getting. He gets a five-week span, a break, between the end of the interiors and the exterior filming. So during that five weeks, uh, Carpenter assembles a rough cut of the interiors of the thing. John Carpenter looks at the cut and he's devastated. He feels the movie that they're trying to make that is in his head is not there. Huh. Uh, he feels uh, it's not moving fast enough. The The power of this creature is not coming off. The assimilation, uh, the taking over of people is not clear enough. The lesson that I get from this, uh, and it's something I've thought about uh, in great detail over the, like for years and years now, is John went to work eviscerating his own picture he cut and he cut and he cut Hmm. the actors were not thrilled by that they found out at the screening in (laughs) summer of 82 when it came out a lot of the actors were a little upset because there's all this you know banter back and forth childs and palmer and so on it all ended up on the cutting room floor and there were also some death scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor because carpenter felt they were too much like halloween like his movie that he had done, mm-hmm. Halloween. It was mm-hmm. it was more of a horror than a, a murder mystery or, or a, a, a monster movie. So during this five week period, he assembled a, a new cut, but he he had done a radical change in his own film, and he had to then repair it and drive the story forward about the thing and the assimilation and what this monster was actually doing, and he had to drive that forward with the exterior shots that he did. Huh. in in December. So some of the shots that he added in December, which were, are not in the script that Bill Lancaster wrote, the scene of Benning's death. That was an exterior shot that they filmed in December up in Stewart. And they actually went inside the set that had been built, but it wasn't heated. It was freezing cold, not meant for any interior shots, but they filmed that scene there just to explain what happened to Benning's 
because they had cut that earlier death. They also had to take care of Fuchs and Fuchs's death, which happened on the ice. They found his, his remains. Uh, And then they, they added a few inserts after that, when they got back from filming um, in, in late December, Uh, they added the scene with uh, Gary in the same room where Gary says, but Bennings, uh, he's, I've known him for 10 years. Yeah, and Kurt explains, yeah. Kurt has to explain a little bit. That's not Bennings. That's one of those things <laughs> trying to take him over. What I've learned from this movie over the years and just looking at how it was made and how it ended up being this absolute masterpiece is that Carpenter wasn't scared to take his own work. And I use the word eviscerate. He absolutely did that. He eviscerated his own work the interior shots that he had done, he did a radical change. He had to convince the people around him that it was the right thing to do. He had to convince the actors that, that it was the right thing to do. He had to convince the studio who, who at this point he was adding scenes that there wasn't even a script for yeah. <laughs> it. wasn't even in the script. Uh, so he was doing so many uh, changes to his film and, and I've learned something important from that. And that's if there are pieces in the narrative that aren't driving the story forward, then they should not be there. There's no reason for them to be there. And if you look at the thing, there isn't a single scene that isn't driving that story forward now Hmm. after his changes. Uh, It's just an incredible message that every storyteller, Mm -hmm. not just writer, but storyteller can get from that is that objectivity is so important in writing. It's hard to get it from people around us we don't get it from friends. We don't get it from family. We don't get it from people that, that know us. Sometimes we have to do it uh, ourselves and be harsh with our own work. I read once, I can't remember his name. It escapes me now, but the author said he would write a manuscript, put it aside for six months and come back to it in six months and read it. With fresh um, eyes. Yeah. With fresh eyes. Yeah. yeah. Just, just because advice. you have to yeah. be objective. Uh, we get so attached to our own work. And it's but now you're, you're talking about a particular type of, of storytelling fast-paced, taut, suspense. There are, just to please devil's advocate, there are more languorous forms of, of storytelling, and uh, and there does seem to be an audience for them. You're not suggesting that every story needs to go through this this process. I'm coming from it from an eye from my own genre, like commercial, right. thriller, uh, speculative fiction, sci-fi, um, fast-paced, espionage, Cold War, which I mentioned. So there's places in every genre for everybody. Uh, but from my own standpoint, this is what, this is my opinion about my genre, uh, which the thing is definitely a part of. I, I, I always say to my students, um, I mean, I don't actually teach a course of creative writing. I, I just teach a course in journalism, but when I'm referring to my own work, I say, you know, if it doesn't help drive the story forward, or if it doesn't do something that really illuminates the character or significantly improve the theme of the piece, then it probably has to go. But you, it's right, impo- right. Yeah, yeah, it's impossible to do that, though, if you've just written it, because you know what you're doing, and you know what you're thinking at that point. So you've got to go away, like you say, six months or whatever, however much time you can afford to do that and come back to it or hire an editor. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have editors and yeah, yeah. and producers and directors oh, and yeah. drama churches. I, These are people who I do feel are, they're critical. Yeah. are there to help us to see those problems and, and uh, make those fixes. Help us the, at least suggest yeah. where there's a problem. I always say to people like, just because I see this as here's the solution I provide, 
that's not necessarily the solution you want to provide, but just identify this as a problem in the story. There's a yeah. problem yeah. here. Yeah. The amazing thing is that Carpenter did this himself. What had he had already done? Because I, I, to me, that sort of just indicates that someone who's made that leap from, from being a, you know, an amateur essentially to someone who's a professional and really understands their genre and understands their storytelling capabilities and can look at it objectively. Like I, I think that takes a leap. I think not everyone makes the leap, but I think most people who do it for a living do. Or they wouldn't be successful. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they'd be and successful. And of course, Carpenter's consistently successful. Yeah, he's we, a we great storyteller. We mentioned uh, before the, the podcast, we started recording actually, that one of my favorite Carpenter movies is Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, m- me too. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. That's my one of my favorites. Just love so that another, another Kurt Russell and Carpenter yeah. combination. Yes. But, yeah. but so, something that's plagued um, Carpenter, though, is the success hasn't been there when the movie's released. So when, when the thing came out, it was not successful. It was up against E.T., which was a you know another alien, but it was a feel-good, happy movie, now, which is what people wanted, and and the thing did terrible. And it's only in later years that the audiences caught up to what Carpenter did, and now yeah. appreciates the movie to to an extent which they could never have predicted back then. Big Trouble in Little China is another one. It didn't do well either. I might be wrong on this, guys, but I think it was competing with Ferris Bueller's Day Out when it when it came out. I have yeah. a question, yeah. though. I think, I, I, do you think there's any possibility, and, and I, I could be totally wrong on this, that it's it's the special effects that's a, the problem? Because in both movies, the special effects are just so over the top and unrealistic that I think I don't for, think so. No, sacrilege. So. Sacri- they just look yeah. so bad, the, and they looked the, bad uh, yeah. in the day, like ET. So, yeah, yeah, like there was only that one special effect. It was just ET, and it was pretty believable. And Spielberg's a master of hiding that as well. And I just don't think that Carpenter. I mean, I mean, I know I'm going to get massively flamed for this, but I just don't think he had that same touch with, with the special effects. I think his vision exceeded what he, they could actually create, which is why he probably had to cut so deeply in that first, you know, set of the shots. The scene, the scenes that they were cutting were um, interactions between characters. Oh, okay. The, okay. The, um, the effects that, that Rob Bottin did were, universally acclaimed at the time and i have to disagree sure. I, I think they, I, yeah i think they still stand up to the, to this day oh really um, i don't think so yeah it doesn't matter that everyone's like that's amazing it still wasn't believable for an audience uh, the, but why the, didn't that matter for people like us who love it because you know? we couldn't look past it because yeah. we're watching the story we're guess, enthralled yeah. by the story we have imagination we can see that what they're trying to do with those things. So like, and actually I still find, I can't remember the name of the character who's the, the head that turns into the spider. That uh, Yeah, sh- that's Norse. I'm Norse. sure that deeply scarred my brother yeah. who's arachnophobe. So, uh, <laughs> so, so audiences were not prepared for this. They, yeah. and repeatedly people in the production have said that it made people uneasy. 
watching it. And that's not what they wanted in a summer movie. They wanted something like E.T., which was a feel-good, happy right. movie. And critics, one of the critics at the time called John Carpenter like like uh, something about gore, that he just loved, like he just loved gore. And that's all that's all the movie was. But there's yeah. so much more to the movie. I I want to read something to you guys if you'll bear with me here. Yeah, yeah. This Go is ahead. what this is critic, New York Times critic at the time. This is the, this is a review from summer of 1982. John Carpenter's The Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes <laughs> horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one thing or the other. Sometimes it looks as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s, a virtually storyless feature. There may be a metaphor in all this, but I doubt it. The New Thing has been written with no great style by Bill Lancaster and directed by Mark, Mr. Carpenter without apparent energy or the ability to share his interest with us. The thing which opens today at the Rivoli and other theaters is too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies <laughs> only as instant junk. Well, so I, I mean, this is audiences and critics at the time that just didn't, that just didn't yeah. get it. They didn't get the story. There the, are the needles going into arms. There's scalpels going into bodies. There's dogs being shot in it. Yeah. Uh, it is, it, it does make audiences very uneasy, but there's so much more to this at the time. The one thing that really bothers me about this is, part of this review says there, there may be a metaphor in all this, but I doubt it. The, the metaphor is on screen in front of everybody for like for oh, everybody to yeah. see it, it is. And it's on posters behind them in the rec room as well. It's uh, there's world war two era posters about STDs in the background. And at the time that they were filming this carpenter and crew knew about HIV and the AIDS epidemic, which was huh. on the rise in the early eighties. And they knew that this was a metaphor for that was um, this, um, this fear, this paranoia of everybody uh, uh, at the station. The metaphor is there's also, I mean, there's also the metaphor of alienation. Sorry, no pun intended. Uh, right. It's alienation, right? Like they're they're, they're right. alienated from their society to the point that they're living in this remote place. And then they're alienated from one another. They can't really even get along, even when it's li- it's literally life and death, and they can't get along. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. I mean, now how much of that is uh, in the original short story that it was based on? Yeah, because actually, you do, so Campbell. you know that John Campbell wrote the short story that this is based yes. on. This yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he wrote that in uh, in 1938. Uh, who goes there? Uh, and um, I've read it as well, but not not before I saw the thing, but after I saw the thing, I read it by John W. Campbell Jr. And it features a character named McCready. It features all, all the characters there. And then when they made the film called uh, The Thing from Another Planet, it was a Howard Hawks production in the 50, early 50s. Uh, it was a totally different story. It was more of a Frankenstein-type monster yeah. movie. And when Carpenter decided to revisit it, they decided to take the Agatha Christie spin, and then there were none spin, but go back to the original. With with the original uh, themes, the imposter theme, the paranoia, it, the thing could be this person next to me or this person next to me here, which is his original intention in making of the movie, and it's something that didn't come out in that first those first round of uh, interiors that he filmed. He's so lucky he has such an amazing cast, because I think they had done all that interior work in terms of who their characters were, so that we didn't need all the pieces that he cut. Right, we kind of understood who all the characters were, just because the actors are so good. And like, hmm. just if you look at the cast list, it's amazing. Like, just who's in that 
who's in that cast. It's all of like it, yeah. the character actors of the eighties and nineties are in that. And it's amazing to watch really them at is, work. Yeah. They were so good. Really they really are so good. Something which is fascinating about the movie too, which, uh, which enthralls me is the ambiguity in the film. Oh, the it, ending, especially <laughs> the ending, especially, but there are pieces in that film that, that make you think, and you go back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, maybe it was this. One of the pieces was the shadow on the wall when the dog is walking down the mm-hmm. corridor. And, and yeah. The room, you yeah, see the shadow on the that? wall. So I've gone over and over in my head. Who is it? Is it Norris? Is it Palmer? Is it Norris? Is it Palmer? I found out years and years after the fact that it was none of the cast. They had actually got a stunt coordinator, Dick Warlock, who was on the film, to play the role of the shadow. And the reason is they wanted it to be ambiguous. They wanted it to be no one and everyone right? Huh. to increase that sense of paranoia. It was ambiguous. You mentioned the ending. Absolutely ambiguous as well. Uh, it's, just these layer, it's just these layers to the film that, that when you watch repeatedly again and again, you notice, you notice these things. And it's just a, such a fascinating exercise, the, the whole movie. So John Carpenter, famous for uh, scoring his own movies, did not score this movie. This was Ennio Morricone. Yes. Did that help or hurt the movie? <laughs> That's a great question because I thought the score it's, was it's, good. I, I, yeah, I, I can't speak for, for John Carpenter. I loved it. I loved the score. Uh, John Carpenter apparently was very, very happy with the score as well. Ennio Morricone scored it in uh, in Italy and then flew over to do the orchestral pieces in California with John. But then, the, but then when they were um, doing post production, they fit the musical pieces into the scenes. One thing that uh, that few people don't know is John did the um, music at the start when the UFO crashes in Antarctica. Uh, that's John's music, uh, John Carpenter's music, and also the new scene of Fuchs's uh, sorry of Benning's death. John Carpenter also scored that. So he had to match up Ennio Morricone's music. Uh, he did yeah. it with synthesizers. Yeah. And that entire scene, which is not in the script, John wrote it, John, John directed it, and John even scored it, which few people are unaware yeah. of. But it adds to the texture of the film. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, he scores most of his movies. Usually he did it at the start because of budgetary reasons that yeah. <laughs> that he couldn't afford to hire someone. So for right. instance, Halloween, when he showed Halloween to the studio first time, they or the distributor, they they um, didn't get it. They didn't like it. They didn't find it scary. And he said, "Just wait till, just wait till I add the music." <laughs> and then he added the music, showed it to them again, and they said, "You were right. You were right. The, the music, yeah, 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 yeah you nailed music's... the music." His Big Trouble Little China score is iconic. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, Prince of Darkness. Uh, what I think is one of the, if not the scariest movie I've ever seen. Score just adds to it. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my question was a little tongue in cheek because Ennio Morricone, after all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, yeah, I mean, and, you know, countless yeah. other classic scores. Uh, but totally different genre, right? Like, yes. like uh, here yeah. you are doing sci fi. Here, here's this guy doing sci fi yeah. horror. But it totally paid off. The, the heartbeat. Um, at the start, when the when the dog is running across the ice field, uh, Morricone's heartbeat just amazing, amazing. Totally fit the the, the desolation, the bleak uh, outlook for the characters uh, as well as the environment. This movie just speaks to me on so many levels, along with all the other films that I saw growing up and the books that I was reading. They just all kind of came together and f- like contributed to uh, to my creative journey. Now the next obvious question, of course, is. Um the remake 
What do we think of the remake? Okay, I'm I'm going to get into some real like uh, nerdy stuff here right now. <laughs> oh, wait, are there spoilers? Talking... Are there going to be spoilers? So you know, you don't mean remake. You mean prequel. You mean prequel, right? So because okay. the, the the new one was actually what happened at the Norwegian base right before. The oh, okay, escapes. that's fun. Okay, uh, and yeah, see, I didn't know that actually. I just use, yeah. saw the the name and yeah, they used CGI instead of uh, rubber, <laughs> which <laughs> Rob Boutin did, and the CGI was worse. It didn't work because it took the audience, uh, me at least, out of it. Yeah. I, I believe even the flamethrowers were CGI in some cases. But I'm going to get really nerdy here for a minute. And um, Splitface, uh, the, the, uh, the, the carcass that they carried back from the Norwegian base to outpost 31 and then they unveiled it and wilford brimley was looking at it and yeah do you know what i'm talking you just saw it right, mark right like I just the, saw it, the, so half I remember the that, face yeah. there's two the like face melt, right. one face over to one side and one yes, face over to the other yes. side yeah so for me that carcass which rob Botin sculpted and, and created is a metaphor for the entire film and it was brilliant because it was about the crux of the film is right there it's it's one half of the face was human and the other half was morphing and changing and monstrous. And it's a metaphor for the evil, the danger, the thing that exists within everyone. all of us, all of us. But in this case, the, the people who are infected um, or are assimilated, that one carcass kind of showed the entire film, this, this human morphing into this monster that's showing the evil within, but in the prequel, which was filmed later with um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, the it's actually two people that are fused together. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, as they're being killed, and, and that to me ruined the entire message of that uh, split face monster. I hate ruined, when they do that kind and of, it, and it ruined the metaphor. But I've never heard anyone else say that. I've never. I'm not sure if if that's something that other people feel as well. It but you know what? That that's the same as you know the whole Star Wars the Force. Oh, I mean, the original, yeah, like <laughs> yeah, the original trilogy, anybody yeah. can have yeah. the force, but then, oh, I, no, it's actually, you have to have this special whatever, you know? Yeah, it just <laughs> undermines the whole wonderful concept. Yeah, it does kind of uh, yeah. destroy the mysticism of it. Yeah, I, I yeah. do know people that uh, resent and object to the concept of midichlorians. Yeah, well. So, so that was in Alaska where they did those ice field shots. And the rest yes, of it was uh, yeah, Stuart, Stuart yeah. BC, Stuart, right? And yeah. this is amazing. This is amazing, Mark, is uh, when they filmed the scenes of the dog running through uh, across the Juneau ice field, yeah. they included a, a blue barrel. And right. the blue barrel, the dog running past the blue barrel, they connected it cleverly with Outpost 31, which they filmed in Stuart BC, by adding some blue barrels to the outskirts of the, of the outpost. So, so the dog running past the blue barrel in June. In, right. Uh, Alaska suddenly connected to the dog running past the blue barrel in Stewart, uh, British Columbia, uh, six months later. Wow. Right. And it was seamless right. and it was incredible. Yeah, and it was viewers, really good. Viewers, it was well done. Yeah. Viewers had no idea that here there's two different locations yeah. separated by no, it thousands was, of kilometers. It was well it was done. Connected by a blue no, because yeah. to the point that when I watched, I mean, I watched the end credits because I knew we were going to be talking. So that's how I knew John Campbell wrote the short story. Because I saw, oh, based on what? <laughs> oh my God, I didn't know that it was filmed in Stuart, BC. And then I saw Juno. I was like, oh, that's how they did that. But God, it was well done. The concept of cutting the fat, getting rid of everything that that doesn't drive the story forward, uh, is something that I've taken with me to uh, with my own writing 
And whenever an editor says to me, oh, do we really need this line? Or or can you cut this paragraph down by a third? Because it's really like, I listen to those yeah. comments. I don't ignore them. I, I take them to heart. And the, I say to myself, when in doubt, cut it out. I say that all the time when, when I'm writing and then when I'm editing and when, I'm, when I read the editor's line edits and when I read the editor's story edits, when in doubt, cut it out. And there are films that, that follow that to a T. Ridley Scott's Alien is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, like every single scene in that movie is just driving that story forward. And then there are movies that I watch when they're meandering and, and I just feel like, oh, there's a lot <laughs> of filler, filler here. I mostly agree with that. But then I think of uh, books like uh, Little Big, John Crowley, which, which do meander, but they meander in a, in a beautiful, engaging way. But I think for the genre that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. There's an audience for what you're talking about, for sure. Now, like so many of the things that we talk about in this podcast, um, I, I had meant to get to this movie before the recording. Life didn't work out that way. But now I'm like super jazzed to watch it over the next little bit. So really looking forward to that. The thing prequel has its merits as well. You should check that out too. Uh, it, it does add texture to the story, despite, you know, it has some some drawbacks to it or some things that I don't fully agree with, but it yeah. adds to the whole context of the story as well. My list is so big yeah. that you're, you're simply going to yeah. have to sell it better yeah. than that. The weird, the weird <laughs> so, bit of synchronicity for right. me is that last night I watched the new episode of, of uh, Monarch, which is they've taken the monster movies and they've done a TV series on Kurt Russell's in that. With Kurt so Russell, I watched yeah. Kurt Russell and then this afternoon I finished watching the thing is like, okay, he's still fighting monsters. What a guy. Uh, listen, listen, Kurt Russell so is, a living le- is a living legend. He, yeah. And I, and if I was in charge of a movie studio, I would be grabbing Carpenter and Russell and just throwing money at them and saying, please, <laughs> please anything you want, you do it. Yeah. You yeah. do it. Exactly. And uh, it, Mark, guys. any final thoughts, questions? Nah, we did it. We did it. I mean, don't flame me too badly for what I said about the special effects. That's all. I'll, that's my only plead. Well, you know, to my knowledge, uh, so far, we're, I think we're over the 30 mark uh, with these podcasts, and you haven't been flamed yet. Not yet, no. So, That's, yeah. You know, yeah. Maybe good, maybe bad. Timothy S. Johnson, thank you very much for joining us. Listen, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, I love talking about um, movies. I love talking about my genre. I love talking about writing. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here, and uh, anytime, anytime, just uh, send an invite over to me. I'd be happy to engage. Oh, and if you well, haven't yeah, heard keep it, an eye on that. we did talk about Alien. We talked with uh, Tim Blackmore yeah, about Alien. I'm so glad we talked about it already because it's like it's a touchstone kind of film listen, for listen, our generation three the, anyway. Three of the greatest films of our generation, right? Alien, The Thing, The Fly. Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum The Fly. Uh, All right. On that note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back and talk about The Fly sometime. Absolutely. been listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? It's not about supporting us. It's about supporting the people that we're talking to. I think most of the people we've talked to 
are artists of some description and they probably have some kind of artistic product that you could buy. And if you enjoyed it, maybe you could review it for them. Oh, yeah. But maybe us too. Yeah, you know what? Us too. It wouldn't hurt. They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line. Sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jenks. Oh, yeah. You're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word. Recreative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney, web designed by Mark Rayner. Kira Mahoney edited this episode. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>